Uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Access to Justice at LSE. For Twitter users, the hashtag is LSE Extractive. Uh, this evening's event is supported by the LSE's Department of Geography and Environment and also the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, which is a partner in the EJOLT project. EJOLT stands for Environmental Justice Organizations, Liabilities and Trade and is an EC-funded project under the European Commission's Seventh Framework Program and specifically the Science and Society Program. It's coordinated out of the Autonomous University of Barcelona by uh, our fearless leader, Professor Joan Martinez-Allier, who's joined us this evening. Um, my name is Hallie Healy, and I'm a PhD student at King's College, but I'm also um, a tutor, a class tutor for a geography course here at LSE called Science and Society. Um, I'd like to thank Michael Mason for helping make tonight possible. He's the lecturer on the Science and Society course, but I don't... Hey, Michael. Hello. Um, so nearly a year ago, I decided while teaching the course that it would be really good to find a way to showcase for my students and for other students at LSE uh, some of the great work that EJOLT is doing in bringing ecological economists together with activists to document environmental conflict. Um, so now to talk more about EJOLT, for a little bit before our main event, which focuses on the extractive sector uh, and will be chaired, chaired by Virla Havert of the Department of Law. Uh, I'd like to introduce two of my colleagues from EJOLT, Mauricio Lazala from Business and Human Rights and Leah Temper from the Autonomous University of Barcelona. And uh, thank you, and I hope you enjoy the evening's proceedings. Mauricio. Thank you, Haley. So my name is Mauricio Lasala. I'm Deputy Director of Business and Human Rights Resource Center. Thank you very much to all of you for coming here this evening. Uh, we believe it's a very topical issue that we'll be discussing tonight, so uh, we hope that uh, you all uh, go out from here uh, with a sense that you learn new things and also uh, manage to discuss um, a, a very important issue. Um, we, uh, the BC Rights Resource Center, for those of you who don't know us, is a, a small non-for-profit organization based in London with regional researchers in 10 countries around the world. And we, uh, uh, our main areas of activities are transparency, public accountability, and empowering others to act. We are the largest uh, information hub on business and human rights issues, both positive and negative, and everything around uh, in different languages. We are right now working on, on a new website that we'll be launching soon, and um, uh, we also seek company responses to allegations of abuses, and I'm very happy to see here very known faces, or a lot of familiar faces, but also some non-familiar faces, which is good. And um, we joined this EJOL project uh, over three years ago. We are just one of 23 partners in the project. Uh, as you heard from Haley, this is uh, a project focusing on enviro environmental justice. And we, as part of our ongoing research, we post on our website a lot of environmentally related stories uh, regarding business and human rights. And we also have a, a dedicated portal on legal accountability issues where we summarize uh, complex lawsuits against companies over human rights abuses, and many of them include 
environmental dimensions to them. And we have logged um, 20 of those, if I'm not mistaken, into the map that Leah will be presenting to you shortly. So uh, many thanks for the speakers for being here tonight. A special thanks to Juan Pablo, who flew all the way from Ecuador to be with us tonight. Uh, but thank you for all of you to, to making the time and uh, enjoy the evening. Thank you very much for inviting me here, and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to present uh, for the first time to the public a sneak peek of the uh, EJOLT Environmental Justice Atlas. So as uh, Hallie and Mauricio explained, in the EJOLT project we have uh, many activities. We uh, produce reports, uh, workshops, public events such as this one, online courses, but one of the major outputs of the project is uh, the idea of creating a global map that tracks ecological conflicts and spaces of resistance. And uh, the map is actually inspired and based on the work of uh, the activist partners in the project who have been tracking over the past 20 years or longer uh, and supporting communities that are impacted often by damaging corporate activities and that are claiming justice against uh, the impacts that they're experiencing. And uh, the map is showing that even though many of these communities don't actually perhaps identify as part of a movement for environmental justice, they are actually part of what we consider a global movement for environmental justice. So I only have a few minutes, but I'll just uh, give you a brief tour of the, uh, of the atlas. So at the moment, we have uh, in the atlas uh, over 900 cases, or at the moment, about almost 900 cases documented. And uh, you can see that they're organized across 10 major categories, ranging from nuclear, that uh, entails the entire nuclear chain, mining conflicts, waste management conflicts, biomass land conflicts, biodiversity conservation conflicts, and so on and so forth. And uh, the map also allows you to filter across the more than 100 fields. Each, uh, each case is documented by 100 fields tracking the basic data of the conflict, uh, the type of commodities involved, the details of the project, uh, the actors involved. We have over 2,000 corporate actors and many international institutions in the map uh, by country, and then by the forms of resistance and by the outcomes in the conflict. So, for example, uh, today we're here talking about uh, legal cases. So if we do a filter, we can see that we have... 380 out of 889 cases involve some form of legal action. So we see that uh, it's a very common tactic used by communities that are struggling for justice, although there's many others, and they're ranging from land occupation to blockades, petitions, local referendums, so on and so forth. And um, I'll just show you in detail one of the cases that involves a legal aspect. Here we could see this is a filter. Oops, sorry. 
so if we filter by legal cases, here is a case, of a quite famous mining-involved case, the case of Niamjiri and the Vedanta mine in India in the state of Odisha or Risa. And uh, we'll quickly go through it. You can see the basic data includes the name of the country, the province, uh, the specific location. The source of the conflict is organized by first level and then second level, which it's about mineral ore exploration, deforestation, tailings for mines, a description of the conflict, the specific commodities involved, the project details, the area, the level of investment, the type of population and the impacted population, the date that the conflict began, the companies involved, and the environmental justice organizations involved, and then the level of conflict and the different groups mobilizing their forms of mobilization, impacts, environmental, health, and socioeconomic impacts, and the current outcome and project status. And then we have one field that says, do you consider this an environmental justice success? Because one of the main goals of the map is also to be able to track some of the factors for communities being able to gain access to justice, which is actually what we're here uh, talking about today. So part of the idea is that uh, through creating a truly global map that allows us to compare amongst cases and look at different trends, we can begin to understand uh, what some of the factors that allow communities to defend their right to environmental health is. Um, so i probably over my time, so I'm just going to uh, make a few more brief points. So uh, some of the main findings that were we, from the first 1,000 cases that we have so far is that these conflicts are obviously increasing, and at the same time, community resistance is also increasing and becoming stronger. So amidst all these stories, we see corporate impunity continuing, and um, we see at the same time that there's a lot of successes happening. So in the map uh, at the moment, 17% of the cases are considered environmental justice successes. And uh, another one of the main arguments of the map is that corporate responsibility is not enough. Uh, what is needed is corporate, corporate accountability and a stronger legal regime. And um, the other thing, I, last thing I would like to say about the map is that you can see that um, it's a bit like an old medieval map. Uh, we have some areas which are, have much better coverage and other areas which are blank spots on the map. And uh, the idea to launch the map now is to invite people to collaborate and to add cases so we can improve our coverage. And the idea is to reach uh, many more cases in the next year that the project continues. Um, so thank you very much for being able to present this to you, and I'm available after for questions. And we will be launching on the 19th, so please follow us at the eJolt, eJolt.org. Hello, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Veerle Heervaert, and I'm an associate professor um, at the Law Department at LSE. And it's a great pleasure to welcome so many people here this evening. It's wonderful to see uh, such a good turnout for uh, such an important topic. Um, I think that 
if, if in the past millennium we had any sort of illusion about our growing technological and engineering prowess making us less dependent on the extractive industries, I think that illusion is probably pretty much shattered by now. We are more than ever dependent on extractive industries. And I th- but what has come in these last few years also is a very strong awareness of that and a strong awareness of the enormous impact that these industries have on human on uh, human health, on the environment, on uh, economy and ecology. Uh, and so it's, it's a wonderfully topical and incredibly important issue uh, to be discussing uh, tonight. Um, and um, I'm very pleased to present the team of speakers we have lined up here tonight. Uh, we will be hearing in succession from uh, Richard White, who is uh, currently an environmental lawyer for uh, Friends of the Earth. Um, and after Richard, who will speak for 15 minutes, exactly, he has promised me, um, we're going to give the floor to Juan Pablo Sainz, uh, Juan Pablo, who um, is a representative of the Environmental Defense Coalition um, and uh, has been heavily involved in one of the major environmental litigations of our time, namely the uh, Chevron Ecuador uh, case. Um, Thereafter, we're moving uh, to Richard Mirren. Richard Mirren, who is a partner at Lee Day and Company, and who's also heavily experienced in environmental litigation, particularly representing uh, people affected by the impact of uh, extractive industries, such as asbestos, mercury poisoning, etc. And he's also uh, developed a great deal of expertise, uh, particularly in the impacts of gold mining in the last uh, 10 years. Uh, And finally, I'm going to give the floor to Aidan Davey, who is Deputy President and Senior Program Director at the International Council for uh, Mining and Minerals, and has particularly done a lot of work on um, consultancy on issues such as sustainable development and corporate social responsibilities, both towards uh, intergovernmental organizations, towards um, multi, and, and also towards the, the private sector, etc. Uh, so together, they cover pretty much every kind of angle and aspect of the, the law and extractive industries nexus uh, that you can possibly imagine. And we very much look forward um, to their presentations. Um, A few small points of order uh, before we move on. Uh, Obviously, you are welcome to keep your mobiles on because, uh, you know, we're in the Twitter Twitter era. But please remember to turn them on silent um, uh, while uh, the event is going on. Uh, Afterwards, you can do what you want. We're not fussy. There's some more information on our list of distinguished speakers uh, here on this page, and here you'll even find a a little tidbit about me at the bottom. Um, And uh, I think that is pretty much all um, I I have to convey to you at the moment. We'll have the four presentations, and thereafter we'll have uh, a question and answer session, which will uh, give us about half an hour to discuss the many issues that will doubtlessly emerge uh, from the presentations. Uh, But for now, I'm going to um, do two things. I'm going to ask Richard to please swap with me because they've said they would be very good about keeping to the time. So if I sit here, I can wave and yes. Okay. 
Uh, yes, yes, I know, but Richard is going to swap places with me. And, and then, as that has happened, I'm now going to invite the first speaker, Jake White, uh, to come up for his presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to talk about access to justice, access to environmental justice, mainly in the UK jurisdiction, but to a degree also looking at the EU. And as my case study, I guess, I'm going to look at unconventional gas and oil. And I'm going to look at that, A, because Franzietti is currently campaigning on fracking, um, and B, because it's something I spend quite a bit of my time doing. So hopefully I can offer you uh, some, of, uh, some of the sort of uh, basis of outcomes of my experience so far. Um, I guess before we sort of embark on a talk of this kind, discussion of this kind, I guess we have to have a crack at defining access to justice. All good lawyers start with definitions, don't they? Um, I guess access to justice probably in most people's minds means two things. You've got justice as fairness, so in the sense of access to justice, getting a fair outcome, getting an outcome that's, that's fair. And you've also got access to justice in the sense of access to the courts, so in other words, access to the justice system. I think, for the most part, I'm going to be conflating the two. I'm going to be talking mainly about access to the courts as a means to achieve fairness, as a means to achieve a fair and environmentally sustainable, for these purposes, fair and sustainable outcome. But before going too much further, I I want to elaborate on on, um, how we at Friends of the Earth approach uh, environmental justice. And I think our approach uh, is mainly um, drawn from the Aarhus Convention. Um, The Aarhus Convention, as some of you will know, is an international convention. It binds uh, 47, mainly European, almost entirely European states. And it has three key pillars. These pillars are access to information, public participation, and access to justice. So there we've got the narrow meaning of the phrase access to justice in the sense of access to the court or access to a a capacity to review public decision-making. To elaborate on those ideas, each of them briefly... Access to information. That seems right, doesn't it? People have a right to information to know about decisions which will affect them, affect their, lo- affect their communities, affect their watercourses, affect local habitat, or indeed the wider environment. So that seems right as a sort of logical precondition. Then there's public participation. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, the process of participating in those decisions which I've talked about. So there, for example, we could be talking about consultation. And then finally, there's this sort of what I'm, what I'm going to refer to as the sort of the thin form, the narrow form of the concept, which is access to the courts. Again, this perhaps is uh, often a last resort, where the other two pillars of the other two parts of our sort of our justice, environmental justice formulation have failed. But it's nonetheless a, 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 a tremendously significant part, and it is the part that I'm going to talk about uh, for the most part. But I just want to leave you at this point with this notion of a slightly broader concept consisting of those three key constituents. How is this implemented? Well, very briefly, um, the Aarhus Convention comes to us, for the most part, through EU law. That is because the European Union is a signatory to the Aarhus Convention. There are lots of wonderfully fascinating and, and arcane arguments to be had about what exactly that means. But in simple terms, our access to environmental information comes to us through an EU directive implemented into UK law through a set of regulations. Public participation comes to us through something called the Public Participation Directive, 
that's what it says on the tin. But you've also got some common law principles there. So you've got the common law principles around consultation, which again basically come from the administrative law ideas of fairness. And then finally, in relation to access to the courts per se, there generally in this country you're talking about judicial review. So that, as I'm sure you're all aware, is the means by which you can apply to the court within a certain period of time and on in certain, subject to certain conditions to review, to, to re-examine the decision which, which the public body has taken. And in certain cases also the legislation which has been made. Where are we in practice at the minute in, in, in this country, in my view, um, on access to justice? I think there's, there's some not too bad, um, and there's some not, not, not so encouraging. On the not too bad side, um, the Aarhus Convention contains certain requirements around cost. Uh, so basically it says that um, access to justice must be fair, equitable, timely and not prohibitively expensive. And that last component has occasioned quite a lot of case law, to say the least. Uh, so you've had, first of all, this sort of domestic sort of cre- con- creation of this notion of a protective costs order, whereby the costs of the claimant are capped because the issue that the claimant is raising is one of public interest. It's in the public interest that the issue should be resolved. Then you had the European Commission stepped in and said, hold on, the UK is not discharging its obligations. Uh, we're going to infract. That was decided last month and has resulted in a pretty good, pretty good outcome, I think, um, with also some changes to the court rules to limit costs for five to £5,000 for individuals and £10,000 for groups. Period for accessing the courts. I've mentioned that you've only got a certain period of time to, get, to, get, to, to gain judicial review. Typically that's been three months, but there have been some changes recently, particularly around planning permission, bring it down to six weeks. Why is that significant? Well, because planning permission, planning is actually the means by which environmental issues are frequently determined at local level. It's the planning authority that actually frequently gets to determine whether, for example, shale gas exploration, whether fracking should take place in your neighbourhood. So it really is important. You've got, not three months, anymore but six weeks to go to court. There's also the role of the so-called Aarhus Convention and Compliance Committee. This is basically an administrative body but has nonetheless had quite a significant role in, 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 in develop, pushing forward case law in this area. So far so good? Well, kind of. There's also some quite bad stuff. We've seen some quite significant attempts to row back by this government on access to justice, particularly in the environmental sphere over the last three to four years. So first of all, there's this government narrative of judicial review as a block to growth. Growth is our priority. Growth, nothing must stand in its way. And we've still got various bits and pieces of legislation uh, on foot at the moment that that, that continue to try to pursue that that approach. Um, So I've mentioned already the the reduction in the amount of time you have to go and get judicial review to six weeks. And there's another piece of legislation which has just been introduced, uh, which, for example, would uh, crack down on what we might refer to as academic cases. So that by that I mean it's an attempt to uh, demonstrate a particular point which may be of quite widespread implications, may have quite widespread consequences, but which may not have particularly significant consequences in the individual case you're bringing. And there you're seeing, you're seeing an attempt in effect to prevent those kinds of cases being brought in the uh, uh, Criminal Justice and Courts Bill currently before the House. There are still issues around cost as well, so Part of the remit here is to talk about remedies. Um, interim injunctions um, are still deeply problematic in environmental cases. There's a general principle uh, that the undertaking you have to give in damages in the event that when you get to the final hearing you lose must not be prohibitively expensive. That's a phrase we've heard already. We don't yet know what that means. 
there's a significant disincentive. There are also the possibility of cases which are now too expensive to win. There's not only a cap on how much you as the claimant will have to pay if you lose, there's also a cross cap on how much you'll gain from the other side if you win. You'll remember the general rule in UK law is that the loser pays the winner's costs. So we now have the advent of cases which are too expensive to win. That seems perverse to me. Um, you've also got significant cuts to legal aid. We've seen raft after raft of changes to legal aid. We had LASPO, um, Legal Aid, um, legal aid um, Act uh, 2012, last two years ago. There's legislation um, on, on foot again now. You will have seen the lawyers, the barristers, out in their wigs and their gowns uh, in the press just recently protesting against this. This is real stuff. This is big deal. This does make a difference at local level. And again, by way of a, a, personal, a personal example at Friends of the Earth, we had a case um, around um, some drilling and for unconventional um, gas in Barton Moss in Salford in, in Greater Manchester, um, which essentially was not capable of being brought because of the restrictions on legal aid which are now in place and which which are continuing to be made. There's also further disincentives. For example, there's a new obligation, potential obligation, this, this new bill that's currently on foot, to require applicants to require claimants to give information about their financial resources. Do you want to do that? Is that going to encourage you to bring a case or discourage you from bringing a case? That will apply, apply across the board to JR, but it certainly will apply in, in environmental cases, and that we're worried about. There are also problems around, for example, the standard of review. So those of you who are um, English ad law, admin law addicts uh, will be aware that the standard of review, so in other words, the threshold you have to meet generally in cases in this country is very high. That's also a problem because what you're seeing is the courts refusing to become involved in some of the substance of the decision-making. And that essentially makes for less effective, less effective judicial decision-making in our view. Also disincentives. So there's the use of the courts in the opposite way by corporates, uh, to some degree, to, to bear down on public participation. These are known as slaps or strategic lawsuits against public participation. The locus classicus on this is, of course, McLibel, not relating perhaps to extractives, but nonetheless, in other words, an attempt to bear down on protest, to bear down on public participation in debate, um, and perhaps in that case scoring a bit of an own goal. I don't think we've seen this recently, at least, in the, in the extractive sector in this country. But we've seen something ver- verging on it in the case of EDS. So that's, that's the big, the, one of the big six um, electricity supply companies um, who commenced proceedings against those protesters who scaled the cooling towers of the um, new gas-fired power station at West Burton. You can tell I'm an energy geek. Um, West, anyway, what they did was they went up and they stopped the, they stopped the power station from operating for about, I think, about six days. It hadn't actually gone live at this point, but the, the commissioning of the power station was put back. Um, and EDF com- um, commenced pr- proceedings for damages for loss of profit for lots and lots and lots of money. First of all, it was problematic because it was far from clear that they'd lost, lost the profit. But second, and more significantly, it certainly looked, from my perspective, like an attempt actually to bear down on protest. It wasn't sufficient to convict these guys of aggravated trespass. It was then necessary to bankrupt them. Now, owing to public pressure, those proceedings did not actually come to fruition. And EDF, in fact, backed down and launched an inquiry. But it's a worrying trend. Um, finally, there are, there are proposals to create a specialist court to deal with planning cases. I won't go into that because we don't know enough about it yet, but there are real concerns there that essentially that's about trying to speed up the process to reduce access to justice, and we may see rule changes as a result. 
So round, round off on my case study. So my case study is, I, I said I would focus on unconventional oil and gas because, as I say, at the minute we have a campaign at Friends of the Earth um, and we're not alone on this. There's concern about um, unconventional oil and gas activities in many countries in the world, which I think would probably come up, come up quite clearly on your map, actually. Um, you're seeing it in countries um, as, as, as diverse as Romania, the United States, um, Australia, um, all, all countries with very, very wide-ranging experiences, very wide-ranging approaches to this issue. What does this mean in access to justice terms here? Well, we've seen a number of very worrying uh, steps to developments, like mainly a governmental level. So just recently, the duty to notify landowners if you're going to drill under their land... That's been removed. That's been abolished. That was abolished in January. So you, the, the developer will still have to put an advertisement, for example, in the local newspaper, or possibly, and, and certainly on the, the, the site at which they're going to drill. But they're not going to have to notify you individually anymore if they're going to drill under your land. Is that going to increase or decrease public participation? I wonder. Um, significant debates in the European Parliament recently um, around EIA, so that's Environmental Impact Assessment. This we see as crucial in this area. It's the means by which you evaluate exactly what sorts of impacts are going to happen. We, amongst many, many other groups, were calling for mandatory, mandatory EIA for shale gas in particular. And the UK government, through leaked documents we saw, which we saw in the papers just recently, uh, lent on, uh, on the Commission, along with a couple of other member states, to prevent that. So we're not going to see mandatory environmental impact assessment. Again, I raise the same question. Does that enhance transparency? Does it enhance participation or indeed access to justice? I raise a question. Um, we've also seen um, some quite concerning guidance issued, uh, planning guidance, which in effect kind of creates a presumption in favour of fracking and gives local planning authorities very, very strong steers about what they should consider and what they shouldn't consider. And I think we can summarise on that by simply saying that it limits the scope of what planning authorities are entitled to take into account. So again, I think it's more likely as a result that these, that these projects are simply going to, are going to get planning permission. Thank you. Um, we've seen um, various other difficulty, various other uh, worrying developments from, from the business side. So we've seen in particular, for example, salami slicing. So here what you're seeing is essentially breaking up the process of drilling, breaking up the process of fracking and so on, into a series of different chunks, into a series of relatively small steps, each of which, when taken on their own, is not massively harmful. But when considered as one, raise real questions. That seems to us to be an avoidance measure. We've seen, absolutely explicitly, we've seen attempts, for example, to decrease the size of the site that's being drilled, decrease the size of the site being developed, so that it comes, so it's smaller than the, the relevant legal threshold, so it doesn't have to be subject to environmental impact assessment. So the, the threshold is one hectare. We saw a series of sites in Lancashire, uh, which were uh, being developed by Core Driller, which were 0.99 hectares. Coincidence or not? Um, so I guess that's, that's, that's probably just about all I've got time to say um, at this point. Obviously very happy to continue the conversation through questions. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jake. And we'll now turn uh, the floor over to Juan Pablo.
Good evening to all. Uh, it's both an honor and a pleasure to speak here tonight. My name is Juan Pablo Sainz, and I speak on behalf of more than 30,000 Ecuadorians, 30,000 of my countrymen and countrywomen, that have now been for over 20 years locked in fierce battle, fierce judicial battle with Chevron. We are now in a position where we hold a $9.5 billion judgment, a judgment that's final, that's enforceable, that came from the Ecuadorian courts, the courts that Chevron chose to be judged in. But we're in a very special or, or, or in a very tricky place as well. We're in a kind of, I don't know, legal limbo perhaps that on one hand we have this enforceable judgment but we are having a hard time in enforcing it. So most, if not all, human rights courts around the globe agree that a vital part of access to justice is the ability to actually enforce a decision. A decision does not enforce, does not mean anything. It's just a piece of paper. So, so what we are, what these people is doing right now is, is trying, my clients were trying to find a way to to, to, to deal with this. In, in this. in this moment, Chevron is using this, our, our opponent, Chevron Corporation, uh, is using this limbo in order to utilize several tools, several things that were outside of the main judgment, but like I said, are making it difficult to, for us to enforce the decision. I'm going to try and cram uh, almost 20 years of litigation in, in 15 minutes, so, so I'm going to skip over a significant part. Uh, first of all, I'll try to provide some context you know, and, and try to explain Chevron's operations and try to explain uh, the, the rulings, the Ecuadorian decisions. And afterwards, I'll go through these specific actions that Chevron, Chevron's undertaken at this moment, and those are the ones that are currently preventing us from, from getting access to real justice in this case. First of all, Tex Texaco's operations in Ecuador. Uh, Texaco uh, is now merged with Chevron, but the actual company that operated in Ecuador was called Texaco. So back in 1964, back in the early 60s, we found that in Ecuador that we had a lot of oil in the Amazon rainforest. And the government went to Texaco because of its expertise, and Texaco offered the cheapest oil barrel in the world. And they delivered on that promise because what they did was cheapen all operative costs. What they did was not spend any money on, on, on security issues, on environmental issues, and instead they allowed those costs to flow outwards, towards nature and towards, uh, towards uh, the, the, the surrounding populations. Uh, Texaco's operation, it's, it's, it's very important that we say that when we speak about this case, we're not talking about an accident. Uh, this is not like other cases like the BP spills in the coast of Mexico, for instance. The way this operation was, decide, was designed sorry, only had one possible outcome, and that outcome is exactly what happened. That out outcome is 16.8 million gallons of oil were spilled. 19 billion gallons of toxic formation water but was, was, was left or was poured directly into the rivers. And more than 600 open-air pits were dug directly in the Amazon ground, and most of them are still there. Chevron left Ecuador in the early 90s, at least between 1990 and 1992. In 1993, when it was evident just what had happened there, we filed suit in New York. We spent 10 years 
arguing before the, the American, before the, the, the New York court that, that, that we should have justice there. And during 10 years, Chevron argued that New York was not the appropriate forum to hold these discussions. So throughout all this time, Chevron managed to move this litigation to Ecuador. Chevron chose Ecuador as a forum, and Chevron committed, they promised, the, the American judges, that they would abide to the, ju the judgment that was to be issued by Ecuadorian courts. Ten years later, 2003, we go to Ecuador, we, we file suit in Ecuador, and the first thing they do is tell the Ecuadorian court that they lacked jurisdiction. And the first thing they do is tell the Ecuadorian court that they, had, that they were not bound by its decisions. Uh, we litigated in Ecuador until 2013. Uh, our record consists of more than 250,000 pages of analysis. We have close to 80,000 uh, individual scientific results, 80,000 both from soil and from water. And there are about 100, and 100 expert reports from both parties. Uh, the courts in Ecuador found that Texaco deliber deliberately polluted. They found that there was a health emergency throughout the region. Uh, they found that there was a lot, like very extensive environmental damage, and there were several complicated and, and unrecoverable uh, issues with the indigenous populations. There are at least five indigenous, indigenous nationalities, five different cultures, uh, that claim those lands as their ancestral lands, and they have had impacts that uh, that will never be that will never be uh, recuperated. So, we get a decision in 2011. This decision was reaffirmed in 2012, and last November, the, the maximum judge in Ecuador, the Ecuadorian National the National Court of Ecuador, ordered Chevron to pay 9.5 billion dollars, and this is where we stand now. We have enforcement actions in Canada because Chevron doesn't have any, any assets in Ecuador. So we have enforce, enforcement actions in Canada, in Brazil, in Argentina. But this is where it gets interesting, and, it, and this is where it deals directly with, with real access to justice. Chevron is using a, a set of tools, different tools, that in practice are preventing us or are lengthening the process for us to start collecting those funds and in turn start remediating the, the Amazon rainforest. First, lobbying, like, like the typical, typical American problem, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, they've, they have several world-class lobbyists that collect millions of dollars in fees. Uh, they, for, they, for example, there used to be this trade preferences, uh, trade preference, preference, sorry, agreement between Ecuador and the United States, and it was a, it was an agreement that was very important for a very important sec sector of the productive population in Ecuador. So Chevron lobbied for years, trying for that that uh, agreement, that trade, that that, uh, that international treaty, to be overturned. Basically, trying to force Ecuador to either let our case go, to either either cut our access to justice, or lose those trade preferences. We've had access to WikiLeaks that show us just how prevalent or prevalent was their influence with the American embassy, constantly trying to force the Ecuadorian government to somehow intervene. They have an arbitration against Ecuador, uh, a bit arbitration, that in, based in, in, in The Hague, in which they're trying to force Ecuador to intervene in our case by threatening Ecuador with the bill. They're basically trying to hand over the bill to Ecuador and, and, and ultimately have Ecuador pay for every single dollar that they have to pay with this. In this arbitration, by the way, it is really interesting and it makes no sense at all. 
because on this sort of systems exist, right, arbitration and investment arbitrations, supposedly to prevent the executive power or to prevent governments from intervening in the administration of justice. And what this panel of arbitrators is trying to do is exactly the opposite. They are trying to, they are asking, in fact, the Ecuadorian government to somehow force the Ecuadorian courts to not enforce a decision they reached uh, legally and, and, and normally. And there's also the, the RICO case. There's this, a lot of you might have heard this, that this was making a lot of news last week about this. Uh, basically, the RICO, the RICO law is a law that exists in the U.S., and it was meant to prosecute the mob, the mafia, the Italian mob. Right now, last week, an ish, a, a decision was issued, a decision that means, a decision that paints us, us lawyers, as well as all the communities, indigenous and farmers communities, as part of a criminal enterprise. So we are all criminals, and our, 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 our final goal is to extort money out of Chevron. So Chevron successfully argued this before the Second Circuit of New York. We have a decision that's right now that pretends to bar us from collecting this, this judgment. If I, if, I, if I have time, I would love to delve deeper into that. And, and, but, but like you see, it's, 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 it's a complicated position. Our actions, our main actions, are still Canada, Argentina, Brazil, or enforcement actions. But this has, you know, this, this makes us think, this made us think about how the world at the end and how corporate structures are, are set up, right? I mean, the big picture about this is how difficult it is at the end of the day to collect a judgment from a big company. When a CEO, for example, speaks to his shareholders about a company's winnings, he paints the picture of a great monolithic entity, right? Like Chevron, like a big thing. But when you need to enforce some liability, when someone needs to actually step up and pay up, then suddenly you have this huge network of subsidiaries. Uh, there was a study called, uh, that, that was published by, by, by Publish Why You Pay in, in Norway. And they esteemed that Chevron has at least 77 subsidiaries worldwide and that 62 of them exist in, in opaque jurisdictions. That means that these jurisdictions have basically no public oversight over how the money is being handled. So, uh, like I said, I could speak a lot longer about this, but I have to pick uh, what I say. There are some conclusions here, right? First, uh, corporate structures are built to maximize income and to evaporate liability, and that needs to change. It's obviously that the system responds exclusively to the interests of companies and has never been thought of or analyzed thought from the perspective of, of, of who can actually be, be damaged by it. Another conclusion is that there are some legal tools at our disposition to, to disregard the, the separation that exists between a company and its shareholders, the veil-piercing doc doctrine, for example. But still, a conclusion is that these this, this tools, these this institutions need to be also revamped, they need to be reevaluated, and need to be updated. Because the, in the specific case of the Bell Prison Doctrine, for instance, you need to fulfill s several requisites that, that, that really hinder the, the spirit behind the existence of this thing, right? And the spirit of all these this tools is to let things as they are pervade 
before the forums, because the, the forum, in this case, the forum is, is, uh, is, is the company's best friend in this case. And finally, what, what I, and this is, this is some sort of a warning I, I, I need to make, and this is something a lot of NGOs have been realizing, is that at the end of the day, this is bigger than us. If we fail to collect, if Chevron's tactics are, are, are successful, then this will get institutionalized. And every single uh, fight, every single uh, cause that seeks to hold companies accountable will meet with the same type of resistance. Even now in the United States, the attorneys, the, the, the main attorneys of Chevron have already uh, offering their services, like their anti-enforcement actions, as a packet, as a package, as a product, as a so there's already an industry being built around this. So this this begs the question, right? Uh, when will it be other causes turns? When it'll be it, it, to today? It's us, but like I said, the tools are being developed. Is already a, a business model, and that's what comp what's complicated. And I think that's an important reason to stand uh, behind this. I wanted to end by with reading a, a quote that was uttered by one, one representative by Chevron. Uh, he once said, we can't let little countries screw around with big companies like this, companies that have made big investments around the world. And that's what happening, what's happening around. They're using all the tools at their disposal, disposal be them legal or not. And however, and it doesn't matter how ridiculous they, they sound, they're just trying to force us not to screw with them. Uh, how many times do you have? That's wrapping up time. Okay, cool. So uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, well, nothing else. <laughs> That's all I have. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Juan Pablo. And I should say, as with Jake, um, you said you could uh, talk a lot longer on this and be assured that we could all listen for a lot longer on this, I'm sure. Um, but we are moving on now, and it's a great pleasure to welcome um, Richard Mirren uh, to the podium, who will um, take us to the next uh, 15 minutes. Thanks very much. Uh, as we've seen from the map that was uh, shown by the first speaker. Uh, history is unfortunately replete with examples of adverse impacts of mining and mineral companies, especially in the developing world. For example, um, on the health of workers and local communities, uh, on the environment, and in generating conflicts between local people, and often security and state forces which then result in human rights violations occurring. Things happen in developing countries uh, around multinational operations that simply wouldn't be tolerated uh, here. This is a picture of a uh, pollution of a river in the Niger Delta. It's from a case we're involved in against Shell uh, by, on behalf of the Bodo fishing community. We're representing 15,000 Nigerian fishermen and their families. And this is a picture of the environmental pollution. 
This resulted from two huge oil spills in 2008, and there's still been no attempt to clean that up. Compare that with what has happened in the Gulf, uh, where BP are being taken quite rightly to the cleaners. But a real contrast. This is uh, just a, a, a um, photo of a newspaper article in another case we're currently involved in, a, in a, against a company called African Barrick Gold. It concerns Tanzanian villagers who have been shot and maimed or killed by the Tanzanian police after they have entered a gold mine. And um, according to the company, uh, this is due to um, the, the, the threat that the villagers have posed to the police, that they say the police, uh, the villagers have been armed and threatening. That's not what our evidence so far uh, indicates. But irrespective of that, can you imagine uh, such a situation here? Imagine if there was this, this type of activity going on in a coal mine or a mine in Britain and people were being killed. The mine would be shut down. <coughs> But this has been going on in Tanzania for years and is still going on. Now, legal accountability is important for two reasons. First, to compensate victims, but in the present context, also, most importantly, to act as a deterrent against uh, bad practice by whichever company it is that is concerned or other companies. Um, how does legal action act as a deterrent? It acts as a deterrent because it hits the company where it hurts, in its pocket, by requiring a company to pay money. Uh, it may involve a company in having to disclose documentation and information that it would rather not reveal may result in findings of guilt or liability which can affect the reputation of the company. And in doing all that, it sends out a warning signal to other companies. The problem in developing countries is that, is that there are serious obstacles to justice and accountability which occur for a variety of reasons. One reason is weak enforcement of regulations and laws um, and no effective criminal sanctions. This is a, a picture of an article uh, of a case that I did in the mid-1990s against a company called Thor Chemicals. had a factory in England which it closed down, had to close down because workers were being poisoned by mercury shipped the whole lot off to South Africa, where it carried on operating in the same manner. Three workers died, and many others were poisoned. The company in South Africa was fined the equivalent of £3,000 for that. And you know, that obviously was no kind of deterrent at all. We ran the case in England, and it was with two waves of cases, actually, was settled in, in England uh, for substantial damages. The company... Uh, Thor Chemicals then changed its name to Guernica PLC because they said this was to symbolise the fascist attacks 
that we've made against it. <laughs> Another problem is um, not just uh, weak um, enforcement of laws, but sometimes the laws turned against the victims, against, the, against environmental defenders, rather than against the perpetrator. This is a, uh, a, from a Guardian article about um, what happened at the Monterico mine in Peru, where local indigenous protesters were uh, arrested, um, and you can see what happened to them. They were detained on the site of the mine by the Peruvian police, tortured. Some of the women were sexually abused. And rather than action being taken against the company or the police, the victims themselves were prosecuted. Uh, This is another case that we pursued in England that was settled in 2011 settled in 2011 without admission of liability by the company but um, we were quite and I think the clients were quite happy with that settlement corruption is another problem Um, this is just a quote from a UK case about the situation in, in, in one developing country I'm not going to mention the name of it but the, the judge found that there was widespread and serious corruption within the judiciary. Well, if that's the situation, it's hardly surprising that people don't pursue claims. Access to justice, we've heard about. This is from the Cape PLC case that we ran about 10 years ago. Cape PLC was an international asbestos mining company. Uh, it caused devastation around the world, but particularly in South Africa where um, what occurred was um, what activists refer to as a trail of death wherever this company's um, activities occurred. And, for example, it emerged in our case that uh, they had used children in their minds on quite a large scale. 6% of our client group of 7,500 had been employed under the age of 7, unprotected, on asbestos mines, there was evidence about children in sacks of asbestos being beaten with whips. Asbestos, asbestosis and other asbestos-related diseases occurred on a massive scale. Um, and yet, by contrast with the US and Europe, where, as, where there has been asbestos litigation for the last 30 years, last 40 years, in fact, and asbestos companies and their insurers have, uh, have gone bankrupt, these victims had not been compensated at all. Why was that? Obviously because there was no means of them getting access to justice in South Africa. Uh, that case um, which we brought in England was settled in 2003. This is uh, about the gold miners' silicosis litigation which we have been involved in for more than 10 years now uh, and we settled one wave of cases last year. But again, the gold mining industry employed vast numbers of of people and has caused dust diseases, silicosis, on on, epidemic proportions. 25% of the workforce on average uh, who were employed underground contracted these lung diseases. So massive rates of disease and yet has completely escaped liability until recently. Why? Because it wasn't possible to get legal representation. Now, um, moving on then to legal accountability in the multinational home courts. So, uh, this is 
just a chronological sequence of the cases that we have run in the UK over the last 20 years almost. Um, it comprises a variety of uh, claims, largely against mining companies and um, in various places, operating in various places, South Africa being the main one, but also South America. And um, these cases have been increasingly successful during that period. They, because they are claims brought in England, they tend to be against the parent company of the multinational, because that is the entity over which the English courts will have jurisdiction. And most of these cases are negligence cases. So they're cases which don't allege human rights violations. They allege that the company was negligent uh, in the way in which it uh, carried out its operations with the result that people got injured. And so what they allege is that there was a breach of duty of care by the, um, by the company which resulted in the injuries. Now, we used to have, until 2005, serious problems with jurisdiction. Forum non-convenience was mentioned just now uh, in connection with the Ecuador case, the Chevron case. We also had the same problem until 2005, and this is, from the, again, from the Cape Asbestos case. This is a picture of asbestosis and mesothelioma victims. Uh, in our group of 7,500, uh, 1,000 died during the course of the forum non-convenience dispute, which took so long to, to resolve. Fortunately, now, since 2005, um, there's been a decision from the European Court of Justice on Article 2 of the Brussels Regulation, the upshot of which is that the English court has mandatory jurisdiction uh, in a case against... A, a, a UK defendant, and that applies um, throughout the European Union. So forum non-convenience, where you have a UK defendant, is no longer an issue. And that has meant that a lot of these cases have speeded up considerably. considerably. Now that's one issue, is jurisdiction. The other issue, of course, is the corporate veil. So I said we sue the parent company rather than the operating subsidiary because that's the entity over which the court has jurisdiction. Uh, but that presents the problem that it's not the parent company that's conducting the operations. And so there's this principle of um, what is known as the corporate veil, the idea that um, a shareholder is not generally liable for the conduct of companies in which it invests. The parent company is a shareholder of the subsidiary. So there in this slide, which is from the KPLC case, you'll see the operating South African companies at the bottom of the tree, and the parent company, which is the company that we sued at the top of the tree. And somehow you have to make the one at the top liable for what ostensibly was done by the ones at the bottom. And which are quite far removed. And the focus uh, throughout our cases has been not, not to say that the parent company is liable for the conduct of its subsidiaries, but rather to say that, to, to point out and to point to evidence which shows that it was actions of the parent company itself 
which resulted in the injury. So that could be, in the case of Thor Chemicals, the way in which it designed the technology, in the case of Cape PLC, the control that it exercised over the operations. And um, this approach, which is one essentially of direct negligence, has been increasingly successful. This is an article from The Economist, which is about a court of appeal decision uh, just about 18 months ago, uh, which, which drew substantially on these cases that I've mentioned, the Thor Chemicals case, the Kate PLC, the PLC case, and, and a couple of other cases, and concluded that, um, the, um, that in principle there was no reason why a multinational parent company could not be assigned with a legal duty of care towards workers at an operation, uh, at a subsidiary operation. So this was a landmark decision uh, under English law and it shows that I think over the last 20 years considerable progress has been made in terms of multinational uh, accountability in, in the UK at least, that there's been a real sea change. And now uh, compared with uh, the first time that we went to court in England on one of these cases, in the Thor case, the judge said to us, um, as soon as we walked in, what are all these South Africans doing suing in this court? Well, I don't think any judge would ever say that now in England. It's something which has been accepted as a means of um, pursuing uh, remedies uh, by uh, people in developing countries. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. And we now turn to our final speaker of the day, uh, Mr. Aidan Davey. Thanks, really. And um, thanks to Mauricio also for organizing this event and for Haley for a very kind invitation. Um, Access to justice in extractive industries is the subject of this evening's discussion. And I want to start by emphasizing I'm not going to be looking at the UK. A bit like Richard, I'll be taking very much an international perspective on the issue of access to justice. Um, before doing so, there's, there's a quaint American expression that says, uh, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Um, and it's really about cautioning against entering into a challenging situation without being adequately prepared. And it struck me as I was coming here this evening uh, that it could be adapted to say, don't bring a non-lawyer to a conversation about access to justice with three lawyers. But unfortunately, that's the situation I find myself in. But I'll, I'll try and muddle through and do the best I can. Um, look, during the course of... Um, how do I advance this thing? Thank you. Thank you. So during the course of the next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to focus on four things mainly. I'm going to say a little bit about ICMM and who we are, and then I want to talk a bit about some difficulties around access to justice and the particular avenues of access to justice that exist. I'm going to spread it a bit more broadly than just judicial remedies and go into the non-judicial space as well. I then want to say a little bit about justice language and the power of words. Uh, because my sense is that in some respects and in some instances, the language we use can and does act as an impediment 
to uh, remedy and justice. And then I want to say a little bit about the role of and criteria for non-judicial remedies by finishing and taking a closer look at this notion of extraterritoriality and whether or not it's a panacea for weakness of redress in home states. Um, Firstly, ICMM was established back in 2001 as a catalyst for performance improvement in the mining and metals industry. Uh, We're CEO-led and membership of ICMM uh, represents a leadership commitment on the part of member companies. Two types of members. We have 21 corporate members, and they are bound by a set of commitments, uh, voluntary commitments, but they uh, voluntarily uh, agree to be bound by those. We also have association members, and that gives us reach but a sort of more dotted line accountability to another 1,500 companies. Uh, Members abide by this series of policy commitments. Some of these are internally promulgated and developed. Others respond to policy developments in the external environment, and a classic case of that would be the Ruggie-led process around uh, the UN guiding principles, where rather than try and develop our own thinking around human rights, we engaged in that, followed it, and subsequent to John Ruggie's reports at the end of both his mandates to the Human Rights Council, we uh, wholesomely endorsed that approach. The publications you see here, these are examples of how ICMM has worked to try and adapt those uh, principles that are very much global in application to a sector-specific context and make them relevant to the mining industry. Um, Most of our discussion this evening will centre on on remedy, Uh, but access to remedy only becomes important where states have either failed in their duty to protect human rights, the human rights of their citizens against environmental injustices or other forms of uh, human rights infringements. Equally, it's only necessary where companies have failed in their responsibility to respect human rights. So I think it's important to get those three elements out on the table. Again, those of you familiar with the work of John Ruggie will recognize the Protect, uh, Respect and Remedy framework as very much part and parcel of the UN guiding principles. Um, Given that redress really is only required in response to harms, again, I would argue that it is far better for companies to, in the first instance, not cause harm. Uh, And again, our work around human rights due diligence has been focused at achieving just that. So when we think about avenues of access to justice, there are kind of broadly speaking three baskets you can think of. So on the the, the left-hand side of this slide, we have judicial sources of remedy. And I think my colleagues have talked uh, a fair bit about that. Uh, The other two avenues that can be pursued when rights have been infringed are are, um, non-judicial remedies that are state-based, and that's in the centre of the diagram here. And there I'd include things like the OECD national contact points, and I see we have a colleague here from the UK OECD national contact point, and they provide a means or an avenue of redress uh, where there have been alleged breaches of guidelines for multinational enterprises. Uh, by um, home country multinationals for harms that have occurred in other territories. There's also something like in excess of 100 national human rights institutions, and they, uh, many of them can handle complaints or petitions from uh, people whose human rights are alleged to have been violated. And the third avenue of redress for victims is on the right-hand side here, and these are uh, either international financial institutions or company-led non-judicial approaches to, to remedy. The top one there is a reference to the International Finance Corporation's Compliance Advisor Ombudsman. 
And that's been set up to hear complaints from communities that have been adversely affected by all sorts of investments that IFC make. Uh, And the other more local form of access to remedy is often provided by companies that have instituted operational-level complaint or grievance processes, uh, such as the one outlined in the slide here. This is the Anglo-American Socioeconomic Assessment Toolbox, which is publicly available. When we think of obstacles to these various forms of remedy. There's been some really good work done uh, to try and tease this out. The publication on the left is a piece called The Reality of Rights, which was done by LSE uh, in collaboration with the Core Coalition. The publication on the right is quite a recent one, and I see Robert McCorkendale, who was instrumental in bringing this piece of work to fruition. It's the third pillar, Access to Judicial Remedies for Human Rights Violations by Transnational Corporations. Um, What I think is interesting is that you see, when you look across the piece, a number of of common barriers emerging. Now, uh, Richard, Jake, and Juan Pablo have alluded to some of these barriers, but at the top there we see things like issues around access to information and information asymmetries, the costs of legal redress, uh, process integrity or limits to legal protection uh, in many countries are a key issue, and the whole notion of uh, piercing the corporate veil, that parent company liability difficulty. Down the bottom, the things that are summarised there are more relevant to um, extratorial application of uh, law. And uh, particularly there, when you look at extratorial application of law, you see things like um, the absence of legal avenues in many states. The UK now improving in that respect, but still difficult in lots of areas. Jurisdictional issues and, and financial obstacles intensified. If it's tough to get judicial access in a country... Uh, that is your, your home country. Try and do it in a country that's very, very far removed from where you live. I then want to shift attention to issues of, of justice language and the power of words. The quote on this slide uh, may seem like a slightly extreme one, but it is a poet, and so poetic license applies. It says, handle them carefully because words have more power than atom bombs. Now, I would argue that the language we use in this area of access to justice can either represent a significant impediment to or can help pave the way for access to justice. And what's interesting is when you review literature sources around human rights-related access to justice, such as the two I mentioned earlier and others, a number of linguistic dividing lines emerge. So simplistically speaking, to the the left of this slide, you see words... Uh, uh, that are associated with harder-edged judicial remedies. Uh, And to the right-hand side of the centre line, uh, advocates of more accessible and potentially swifter forms of remedy tend to favour those kinds of words. So ruling versus remedy. Ruling's very much the result of judicial processes, whereas remedy can indeed be the result of of judicial processes or non-judicial processes. And and the particular avenue of redress that that a victim of abuse might pursue might just depend on the outcome they're interested in. Are they looking to expose wrongdoing? Are they looking at preventative measures or punitive measures? Or are they simply looking for recompense for the loss they've suffered? Um, Similarly, liability versus accountability. Liability is very much in that space of legal obligation. Accountability uh, being a looser concept, but one that embraces a willingness to assume responsibility for the consequences arising from a company's actions products or policies beyond the legal minimum. 
Much of the, the discourse around access to justice and extractors is dominated, I think, by assertions of abuse and criminal liability. And my, my sense is that a discourse that centres on abuse is inherently problematic and, and, and it can serve as an impediment to access to justice. Now, why do I say that? Simple reasons. Typically speaking, companies don't self-identify as being rights abusers, and in fact they take great exception to the notion that they might be, even if in situations they can be. More responsible companies often go to great lengths to try and avoid adversely affecting human rights, but let's recognize they don't always succeed. So where companies fail, they are more responsive, I think, to the notion of remedy for harms or infringements of human rights, which may have been intentional or unintentional, than to allegations of abuse. This isn't about sugarcoating messages to avoid upsetting corporate sensibilities. It's about finding a language that is more likely to lead to acknowledgement of failure and the need to make restitution for the loss that's been suffered. When I talked about those um, obstacles to access to remedy earlier, one of the things I didn't mention was the importance of proximity. So, in, you know, when we talk about environmental or social harms, one basic point of principle is that the closer the means of pursuing justice is to the point where the impact has occurred, I think the greater the prospect for more timely and effective remedy. Conversely, the further away the means of accessing justice is from the point where the harm occurred, the more protracted the pursuit of justice becomes and the prospect of remedy becomes more elusive. And we've seen some of the cases which has been involved in and others, they often play out over a very, very long period of time. A related point is that alternate dispute resolution processes, which are often involved in non-judicial processes, grounded in negotiation, arbitration, mediation, are regarded by the, their proponents as better, faster, cheaper than pursuing legal remedies. And the most local means of access, especially in remote areas, and many extractive companies are operating in very remote areas, will often be through company-led grievance mechanisms. And these are not a substitute for judicial or other forms of non-judicial remedy. But if they're well designed in a manner that creates trust amongst the people who need to access them, they have the potential to provide effective remedy for a variety of environmental and social harms. This can prevent the risk of discontent about less onerous forms of harm escalating and becoming a source of dispute, conflict or protest, which in many, many cases leads to far more significant harms occurring, including abuses of human rights. Um, again, those of you who are familiar with, with Ruggie's work will recognise these criteria for effective non-judicial uh, non grievance mechanisms, which he'd outlined in the UN Guiding Principles in 2000. And 11. Together they're intended to create the benchmark for revising, assessing a non-judicial grievance mechanism. Let's recognize that not all of the non-judicial mechanisms I mentioned, including OECD national contact points or corporate-led mechanisms, necessarily deliver on the promise of these principles. But it's also interesting to test these principles against judicial remedies. Uh, and in practice, I suspect that many domestic judicial avenues of redress or remedy within a host country would rate very poorly against these criteria. And when you look at extraterritorial means of redress, they would probably rate even more uh, poorly. I also want to challenge the notion of extraterritoriality as a panacea for failures by host states of extractive companies to fulfill their duty to uh, protect. 
This slide uh, shows Esther Kirbel outside the U.S. Supreme Court last year, and in so many ways she depicts the human face of why access to justice is so incredibly important. Uh, she was imprisoned and tortured in Nigeria, and her husband, uh, Dr. Baranam Kirbel, was one of the Angoni Nine who infamously was tortured and murdered in, in Nigeria in 1995. In April last year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that she couldn't proceed with her case against Shell for aiding and abetting in the torture and murder, murder of her husband under the Alien Tort Claims Statute on the basis of a presumption against territoriality. Now, I don't want to go into the specifics of that case and the rights and wrongs of the judgment, but instead I wanted to reflect two concerns that I have, that the advocacy community may have a disproportionate focus on extraterritorial means of access to justice. Um, The first is that by focusing on extraterritorial avenues of justice, we're effectively giving up on territorial means of accessing justice. Would it not be better to concentrate our efforts on the state duty to protect by directing resources to building the capacity of the judiciary and the national human rights institutions of those host countries of extractive activities? My second concern is one of scope, though, and and it's why limit the concept of extraterritoriality to justice? Why not extend the logic into other areas of state incapacity? So investments by multinational enterprises can help support the realisation of a broad, broad range of economic, social and cultural rights through employment and other means. But where multinational enterprises are operating in host states that lack the capacity to create that enabling environment, uh, does that mean that home governments should intervene to support the realisation of economic, social and cultural rights in other countries? I think not, but why do we make an exception when it comes to access to justice? Very quickly, to wrap up, um, you've seen this picture already. I'm not going to talk for any length other than to say don't misinterpret what I'm saying to suggest that I don't see a role for extraterritorial means of redress. It can be profoundly important, particularly in instances like this, uh, where domestic avenues of justice simply have failed to deliver. Um, but then lastly, in closing, I think it's interesting to look at some recent developments relating to tax justice. Uh, the International Bar Association recently released a lengthy report on the subject of tax injustice, and the basic thrust of this is that by not paying a fair share uh, of taxes and royalties, companies are depriving the host country from the means of uh, having essential revenues to realise social, economic and cultural rights very early days in the debate around tax injustice, but it's tempting to reflect on the fate of the notorious gangster Al Capone, who after failed efforts to prosecute him for bootlegging and murder, he was eventually jailed and, uh, for tax evasion. It'll be interesting to see uh, if some of those uh, corporate citizens who fail to respect uh, human rights are ultimately held to justice through similar means. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. All right, well, thank you very much to all our speakers for, um, for wonderful and also um, uh, very uh, succinct uh, presentations. It's a pleasure not to have to get up and wrestle the microphone from you. Um, we're now going to uh, turn to um, the uh, audience uh, for questions. I just want to double-check. Do we indeed have half an hour for the questions? Fantastic, all right. So um, we have half an hour for the questions. Um, may I please uh, just a few reminders um, before I turn over to you. Um, uh, in an attempt not to wear out any soap boxes, please let's 
ask questions rather than uh, direct general and especially general lengthy uh, comments uh, at the panel and also in order to be as inclusive as possible because I can imagine a great many of you uh, will have questions um, please try to keep the questions uh, reasonably brief uh, so that we can get more in there we're going to take about three questions um, and then turn over uh, to our panel uh, for responses so I saw there was yes a question over there thank you I'm Doug Castle from the University of Notre Dame in the United States, where I teach business and human rights. I want to congratulate the panel members and the organizers for a very informative and uh, uh, diverse series of presentations. Uh, just two brief observations. First, to Mr. Davey, uh, I, of course, agree that we'd love to build up the national justice system in Zimbabwe, Guatemala, Honduras, and Cambodia, but that will take a while. So in the meantime, and the meantime when it comes to justice reform is often decades, not years, we need uh, home country justice of the sort that, that Mr. Mirren has been pursuing. <laughs> to Mr. Science... And we've debated this publicly before, so I won't take anyone's time on this. But there were, uh, while I fervently agree with you that corporate structures based on parents and subsidiaries are designed to increase profits and shield them from liability, and that one of the biggest issues we have to face is, is finding ways to either improve the doctrine of piercing the corporate veil or bypassing it altogether, as Richard Mirren has been doing with some success, um, it's also important to recognize that there's more to the story uh, of Lago Agrio than we heard tonight. Uh, you did mention last week's uh, decision by the federal judge in New York. The federal judge found that the lead North American lawyer for Lago Agrio bribed the judge, bribed the judge's supposedly independent expert uh, on damages, uh, tampered with witnesses, committed obstruction of justice, committed money laundering, uh, these, there's much more to be said. The plaintiff's own environmental experts, most of them have recanted their testimony. Uh, I could go Excuse on. Excuse me, so is, would you like uh, Mr. Science to, to comment on, on these allegations in your question? Is that I, I would just like him to uh, comment on whether he has given a full and balanced presentation of the okay, case. Okay, thank you very much. All right, we will take, yes, there's another question over here. And could you just wait for the microphone? Thank you. I'm Godwin Ojo, Executive Director, Environmental Rights Action, Friends of the Earth Nigeria. Uh, the presentations were really informative. But uh, what I find that was lacking a little bit was the aspect about uh, business risk. Uh, it, this, it just presented it, the conclusions, no one was actually addressing the risk to business. Uh, in Nigeria, uh, for example, uh, so many communities have fought against the oil companies and they have failed. Community protests, from peaceful protests to armed struggle, this appears to be liquidated. But there's a new form of business risk in which uh, resistance is now pointing towards self-determination in terms of resource ownership. Now 20% of the resources in terms of oil refineries is now in the hands of local communities. So we can define access to justice 
equals access to resources? Uh, that is one question maybe you can begin to look at. Uh, the second question I want to pose is not really a question but a clarification. Uh, the idea of uh, trying to put a divide, whether to focus on judicial uh, environmental justice on the home or overseas, uh, is rather uh, not necessarily an issue to look at. Because in the Nigerian case, and also with the uh, Lide, if the Lide case of Bodo is successful, it complements the environmental rights action milieu defense case in the Netherlands against Shell. And that has a way of putting pressure on the home country judicial system. So why don't we see them as complementarity rather than uh, trying to look at this issue? So these two questions, I have so many but questions. Yes, which, uh, is, there, is there a particular member of the panel you are I addressing? I think it cuts across what especially, it cut across. Uh, okay. Just a third question, Lide, you mentioned two aspects of demands, compensation and deterrent, but you didn't talk about remediation. And what about the criminal justice system against the CEOs that are persistently taking uh, decisions across 50 years that is destroying lives on the environment? Is that not? Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you very thank much. You. Right. Okay, I saw there's a question over there as well. And. Hey, I'm not sure if you have to stand up. But anyway, uh, my name's Andy Hegan, but I'm running from the Columbia Solidarity Campaign. Um, I welcome the debates. I think it is slightly narrow because uh, we have lawyers and we have the corporate view. The social movements are a non-judicial, non-corporate form of resolution of these conflicts. Uh, in Colombia, a tsunami of gold mining corporations trying to get hold of access to the gold of the, in those hills. And um, really, the solution isn't contained within Rudgy, because Rudgy presupposes the presence of the corporation, presupposes its goodwill, and so on. And so the, the two questions that arise from that are, what about the rights of prior uh, informed consent? Does it, shouldn't it not apply in practice, obviously, to indigenous groups, but more broadly to communities, to campesinos, to African communities, to Senate communities, and so on, right? And the second question is, uh, be aware of misdirection, because uh, while our attention's been drawn to Rudgie as the only game in town, we have a multiplication of free trade agreements, business investment treaties, and so on. Uh, Colombia, for example, is very enmeshed in this now, which basically guarantee corporate profits and give an extra motive for the criminalization of social protest against the corporations. So I, I would invite, that's the question, isn't the game changing as we speak? And it's welcome the advocacy uh, that's taken place, but the very framework itself is becoming more and more pro-corporate rather than less. Okay, thank you very much. We're going to um, uh, just uh, address these questions now. So we had questions regarding um, the, um, the fact that the building up of the domestic justice system takes time and uh, a request for a comment on the context, the broader context uh, uh, of the recent court decision. So if we could start uh, off with that. Um, would you like to... Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it's a pleasure meeting you, Professor Castle. Castle. Um, yeah, uh, there's been a lot of allegations uh, for a number of years now. And these allegations are completely taken out of context. 
and I believe that Shavon knows that. So what's new about the RICO case and the findings in the RICO case? What's new about these allegations and the allegations that have been going on in the past? Chevron knew that, like I said, that all, all these individual stones that have been thrown, that have been uh, taken out of context, and they know that they are, they are explainable. They needed a witness as a central pillar to weave a story using these allegations, to weave a narrative and try to present that to the court. That pillar necessarily needed to take the form of a witness. And, and since no witness existed, Chevron fabricated one. Judge Kaplan, Judge Kaplan is the judge that just issued the decision. He based his, his, his scandalous accusations on one Alberto Guerra. Let me explain you who Alberto Guerra is. Alberto Guerra is a former judge in Ecuador that testified under oath in the U.S. that when he was a judge, he used to sell judgments. What does that mean? He used to, 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 he used to rule in favor of one party or the other for $100. Okay? Now, Chevron has admitted that they gave Alberto Guerra this same character between benefits and payments more than $350,000. Chevron relocated this witness and his complete family to the U.S., Chevron is fighting to get this guy a refugee status. So my question is, if $100 buys me a judicial decision, what does $350,000 buy me? And, and that's what's behind uh, Judge Kaplan's allegations. Uh, that there's really not m much else to say about it. All right, thank you very much. Um, there was the issue raised of business risk and uh, whether that had been taken into account. Can I invite uh, some comments on that, please? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, look, you raise a very good question um, about the whole issue of the risks of the business. And I think in many ways, one of the reasons why... Um, you know, with respect, I mean, I appreciate you know, you know, Ruggie isn't the only game in town, but one of the reasons why uh, his recommendations had both a successful landing with, with governments and with business and with many, but not all, of civil society uh, was that he explicitly recognized this notion of, of risk. And I think for the first time uh, laid bare the notion that absence of knowledge was a, a good protection for business to have in this space. Uh, and the acquisition of knowledge could only really underscore business's ability to actually demonstrate that they were taking these issues seriously. So my, my sense is that in that respect, um, business risk is four square within this debate about the, certainly the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. Uh, there are a whole set of other risks that flow from litigation and being on the losing end of litigation, which I think Richard alluded to earlier as well. All right, thank you very much. Um, also picking up on the, the last set of questions, um, there was, I, I was very intrigued by uh, particularly the comment uh, that brought the T of the e-jolt into the picture by referring to the impact of the, the relationship between access to justice and uh, free trade agreements. I wonder if, if uh, uh, Jake or uh, Richard, whether this is something that you have had uh, any experience with and would like to comment on. I can comment very briefly just to say um, I'm sure many people in the audience are familiar with the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is currently under negotiation between the United States and the EU. And as much as in my presentation I may have painted uh, the EU 
to a greater or less degree as the good guys, I think on this one I'm a little more sceptical. And certainly so far as shale gas and fracking are concerned in, in, uh, in the EU, the TTIP, insofar as it insulates business against risk, insofar as it insulates business in particular against change of law and reverses liability in exactly the way that Juan Pablo was talking about, back onto the member states, that's obviously a development of very real concern. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, did you want to pick up on the prior informed consent issue? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, again, I'm glad you've raised the issue of, of free prior informed consent. Um, in the context of indigenous communities, I mean, I think this is a profoundly important principle, and I mentioned about the policy commitments that ICMM members subscribe to. The Council of CEOs, uh, that is the, the governance structure that, that leads ICMM, took a decision last year uh, that they would commit to work to obtain the consent of indigenous uh, peoples uh, where their operations take place on lands or territories of indigenous people. So profoundly important principle, tough to uh, implement, but uh, you know, I think a very, very progressive move in terms of embracing that commitment. Uh, I disagree with the notion that you should extend that concept to communities writ large. I suppose for two reasons. One is because uh, FPIC and its application to indigenous peoples reflects the special status, the vulnerability, the marginalization, uh, and the disconnect from the, the majority that most indigenous communities face. And so I think it does apply in those specific instances. To apply it to the wider community, I think, is essentially to uh, say, government, pack up, your day, is, your day is done, your job is done. Uh, and so f for me, it's a dereliction of duty on the part of government to say it's up to you communities everywhere. Can I, can I just ask a question yes, yes, that follows on from that? Um, you say that there should be prior informed consent when ind Indigenous communities are involved. So uh, what we know about the Monterico case was that that was a case which uh, involved a mining company operating in an area where Indigenous communities lived, and they didn't want the mine there. So your position would be that in that situation the mine should not have been allowed to go ahead. So I'll be very clear on my position. My position would be it's not something you can apply retrospectively, uh, as you'll appreciate. But let's say Monterico Metals were looking to do that project today. Uh, our position would be that they should either obtain the consent of the indigenous community, and if they fail to obtain the consent, and, and this is not a this is a best effort standard, only after protracted best efforts to do so, and we kind of spell out in detail how we think that can be done. If they fail to obtain the consent of the community, uh, government may in its wisdom decide this project should proceed. And if government does make that decision, then it's up to our companies to decide, do we want to live with the consequence of the government decision? So that's the position. Okay. All right. I think that's going to raise a few more questions. All right. I did see some hands up already. There was a, a gentleman over there, a lady over there, and a gentleman in the middle. Is that correct? Um, okay, yes, um, yes, it, was, was I wrong, was I, yes, you were. Mm -hmm. I, this was sort of mentioned earlier. Um, we've kind of taken a legal approach to this issue. I'm wondering um, what role could uh, public pressure, media campaigns, social, civil society organizations have in influencing these legal outcomes? Thank you, thank you. Was that direct enough for the Beautiful, question? short, sweet. <laughs> Any more? <laughs> All right, there was a lady over there, I believe, who wanted to ask a question. Hello. Um, I think this is more towards Richard, but, but to everyone, I suppose. In terms of trying to 
generate the uh, legal, political, cultural will to see certain industries contract completely or, or cease to exist. Uh, what are the best legal steps? I mean, you talk about um, pursuing the legal duty of care when it comes to workers in the workplace. Um, have you found that's the most effective way to try and um, prevent uh, particularly harmful, abusive, let's use the word abusive, uh, industries uh, from, from carrying out um, violations to both uh, climate and people? Or, or what, you know, what are the most effective um, kind of legal uh, recourses or, or, or legal deterrents? Thank you. Oh, and I just want to make a comment on um, Aidan's uh, sort of presentation around language. I found that really problematic uh, and very much sort of reinforcing uh, a culture that's very much focused on normalizing uh, the perpetrator's abuses and trying to negate um, victims um, in the same way that you might tell a woman um, who has been raped, not to use the word rape and not to define herself as having been raped. That's how I read that. Um, I found it deeply problematic. Thank you. Um, we will take a, a third question here in the middle. Thank you. I'll ask a question to Richard Miran about the last case you put in your long list of interesting and some successful cases, which was Tintaya in Peru with Glencore Strata. Uh, in Espinar in Peru, in which, and the question is, I mean, the mayor of Espinar was thrown to jail instead of throwing to jail the people from Glencore Strata to start with. And the question is, wouldn't it be better to go through, not to civil cases, but to try to have criminal cases and perhaps to have an international criminal court as this has been done now for some heads of states and, and government. And then I had something to say about the, the trade agreements. I was in Costa Rica a few days ago. So there is a firm called Infinito Gold. And the court, the Supreme Court in Costa Rica, accepted the argument from the civil society that the concession was illegal. So they struck it down. Uh-huh. And Infinito Gold goes to the World Bank, to this... Uh, Siad in Spanish and this uh, arbitrage kind of mm-hmm. pseudo court in which the president is from the World Bank asking for $92 million. So it's better, well, he's going to make more money not mining than mining the world, isn't it, perhaps? So this makes a mockery of what you were saying that justice should be done in the territory where the harm has been done. This has been the case in Costa Rica, has been the case in uh, Salvador, with Pacific Rim, we have lots of cases. And these arbitrage kind of courts, they are not courts, they are, and they are imposed by the international trade treaties, which are not trade at all. They are warranty, investment warranty treaties, isn't it? That's right. what they are. Okay, thank you. There's a, a set of really good questions here, and I think we can uh, probably combine uh, a few of them. Um, let's first talk a little bit about the, yes, the role of public pressure, non-legal measures. Um, what role do they have to play in guaranteeing access to justice? And, and that would then be justice in the wider sense of fairness, etc. I will. I'll start. Um, I can tell you that uh, in our cases, the involvement of NGOs and trade unions has 
has been uh, enormously helpful and influential. In the KPLC case, for example, we had a whole range of NGOs uh, campaigning, raising the profile of the case. Uh, and, uh, and also the, the, tra- the trade union, the National Union of Mine Workers, demonstrating at uh, various venues. So this is uh, absolutely critical, and um, especially where you've got companies uh, who care about their image and their reputation, uh, particularly important. In fact, in the KPLC case, we were dealing with a company that wasn't really bothered uh, how disgusting it, 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 it looked, but um, that's, that's not always um, mm. the case. So I th- I'd say very important. Oh, thank you. Can I come on yes, yes, absolutely. I, mainly just to echo, but just to say, I think as an NGO, which complements exactly what Rich has said, I think litigation, I think going to court is but one of these instruments at your disposal, you know? So you've got a campaign objective, and litigation is one of the ways you might go about achieving that campaign objective. And there are a whole series of others, many of which you listed, which are great. And I think the reality is that they can come together, that if you can find a case that, that, that advances your campaign objectives, and behind which you can bring a, gra- a groundswell of support or a groundswell of a popular opinion. That's a very powerful combination. Yeah. Thank you. Um, moving on to the question, there was a question asked about, well, what are, what are the most effective legal mechanisms? You mentioned duty of care. We might compare it to, for example, a human rights-based approach, etc. And we can combine this with a question about, well, specifically, what about criminal law? What about the role of criminal law in uh, um, trying to secure justice uh, for uh, harm caused by extractive industries? Um, Jake, would you like to comment on that? Or, or like Richard, Richard oh, Pablo, yes. I just, I just have a brief comment about, comment about that. I think we're long overdue and we really need a system that applies some sort of criminal responsibility to corporations or to CEOs or to members of the board. Big, because as big as these issues tend to be, there's always also very human, very petty interests at heart. And once again, using the, using the Chevron case, uh, Chevron CEO John Watson he has been fighting this fight so thoroughly and so viciously because he has some 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 vested some some personal interests some petty interests in here as well. In his case, for instance, he he was the one that when Chevron got merged with Texaco, he played a key role in that merger. So basically, a lot of the decisions that meant keeping Chevron's shareholders in the dark about the responsibility they were acquiring while acquiring Texaco, a lot of that. Is, is 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 I think it's 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 the CEO's responsibility. So a lot of you know not reaching for an agreement that might be beneficial even for his shareholders. Uh, there, there's a lot of personal interests, and and these personal interests need to be dealt with in a criminal matter if civil law is, is not enough. Thank you. Uh, can yes, I just yes, please. Um, I mean, we we are obviously great believers in the use of civil law and the t- and tort law to um, to hold companies to account. Um, and um, in, the, in the idea that uh, the, being involved uh, in a legal action in which the behavior of the company is scrutinized in great detail and in the end the company runs the risk of not just um, reputational damage but also having to pay out a lot of money is, is um, a great form of deterrence. However, I think there are two critical Drawbacks. One is obviously, if you're bringing a compensation claim, then the damage has already occurred. Mm-hmm. So you're not preventing that particular damage; you're preventing other damage, um, which is important, but it, it doesn't doesn't 
prevent the, 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 the harm that has actually occurred. And the other problem, I suppose, is that there, that there may be something objectionable about characterising something which is actually a criminal act, a human rights violation, as negligence. Mm-hmm. In, in that context, actually, because I did want to pick up on this, uh, uh, I think, very interesting comment about, well, there is, there is a cost to softening your language, which was uh, the comment that, that was earlier made. And in, 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 put, putting that in a slightly broader context, not only is there a cost to softening your language in order to get some cooperation, there's also, I mean, and I'm sure many of you have been confronted in one way or another, in different guises perhaps, with trade-offs to make between, on the one hand, settling for slightly less, but getting a more immediate outcome and getting some sort of solace and some compensation for immediate victims, and holding out longer and fighting on principle, which is the long game. How do you kind of reconcile these very different um, agendas that you, that, that you need to manage of getting compensation and playing the long game? And uh, yeah, it would be wonderful to hear a little bit from all of you on, on that point. If I may... Um, um, with apologies for causing offence about the notion of softening language, it was probably far less offence than the notion of equating um, uh, my suggestions that somehow rape could be euphemised with a, a less toxic word. Um, where do I come from in this notion of the softening of, of language? And it's not actually anything to do with the softening of language. It's about the pursuit of redress. So my experience is not informed, as I say, I'm not a lawyer, it's not informed by the practice of law. My experience is informed by working with the Office of the Compliance Advisor Ombudsman in Washington. That's the complaint mechanism. It's not ICSID, incidentally, and I'll explain the difference in a moment. It's a complaint mechanism that is set up to hear complaints from communities who've been adversely affected, socially or environmentally, as a consequence of the investments by the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank. Now, our experience consistently through the work of the CAO was that language was an impediment to justice. And by having to label something as a, uh, as a, as a legal infraction or a legal infringement, by having to label something potentially as a human rights harm, what you did is you got the parties into an oppositional space. And often, the way to break through... the And and again, I'm talking about non-judicial access to remedy at that very local level. Often, the way to break through impasse and difficulty was to find a language that was acceptable to the community or the individuals that have been adversely affected and to the company. So this this is not about trying to sweep under the carpet things that are inherently difficult or problematic. It's about what is the best route to effective justice for people who've suffered harm. And again, I throw out this sort of challenge to the advocacy community. If you consistently put things in the space of language which is inherently really challenging and difficult for companies, from an advocacy perspective, that's good. But from a remedy perspective, and there are real people on the ends of uh, all the various complaints who in some cases have suffered extraordinary losses, my interest is in accelerating their access to justice and their access to remedy. And so if that means that we have to do a dance where we compromise on the language that's used, I think that's okay. 
Incidentally, the point about ICSID is very well made. I wasn't talking about ICSID, which is the International Centre for Dispute Resolution, which is part of the World Bank Group, which is very much around bilateral investment treaties, etc., which my colleagues will know far more about than I do. I was talking about this mechanism designed to address very local-level, heartfelt situations where companies have... communities have suffered loss as a result of companies. I hope that clarifies things. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Would you like to... Yeah, I think what what is being highlighted here is uh, a tension between the the public interest nature of these types of cases and these issues on the one hand and the and the interests of victims on the other. And we often find that that this happens arises in our cases where generally victims' interest uh, may be because you're dealing with impoverished people in getting money as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, because they need to support themselves and their families. Whereas often when you're working with with other uh, organisations, NGOs, etc., they get quite um, upset when cases are settled, often, especially if they're settled just before trial, when you know you've got a strong case um, and you haven't established any kind of legal precedent. But, um, you know, our role as, as lawyers... Mm-hmm. involved in those cases is to act in the best interests of the ind- individuals who we're, we're representing and if their instructions are to accept the settlement then that's what happens but it does I think you know, highlight attention mm-hmm. I, yes. I guess there's a, one of the NGO representatives here I, I, I absolutely buy what you said Richard I think you're right I think where there is a point of principle at, at stake I think there is a tendency in the NGO community to say well that point of principle must be resolved and that involves having my day in court. But I think there's also another side to that from a, from a victim-type perspective, which is I think the court also potentially actually provides a space within which certain stories can be told, within which certain uh, there, there is a, a place and a time set aside for a victim to have their say, to be heard. And so I th- there is in that, sort of, in that kind of in that wider sense I think in some cases it's quite difficult to get around saying, actually, this has to go to trial because of the sort of restorative uh, impacts that the hearing itself may have. All right. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to rest. It has to be very brief. And you also have to be very brief, and then we can get a few extra questions in, and then we need to wrap up. Uh, I can take two more. Uh, gentleman over there in the red, and I will go with the uh, gentleman over there with the beard. So two very quick ones and very quick answers. Thank you. Hi, uh, Jeremy Greenberg. I'm studying human rights here at the LSC, and I'm working on a dissertation on extractives and uh, human rights. Um, but So maybe actually this is a more optimistic question, which is I'm interested in the Ruggie principles as a potentially normative force for creation of something within international customary law to then embed legal obligations on businesses. I was just wondering if you could comment on whether you see this as a possibility with Ruggie or whether it's just sort of a PR exercise. Um, yeah, but basically anything. Could it be setting a precedent now for something stronger down the line? Thanks. Thank you very much. And then the final question. In, my name is Archie Case. I come from the religious sector, the church sector. I worked in Bangladesh for 15 years and in the Philippines for 10 years. My question is, should individual private extractive companies be allowed to sue sovereign countries extraterritorially? 
territorially. There seems to be a disparity of equals in the legal forum. The nation state, how can a private company sue a nation state? Thank you very much. Beautifully to the point. So we have a question about the the broader role of the Rodney Principles and one about standing about the the right of private companies to sue states. Um, I I assume, uh, Aidan, that you would like to feel the first one. Just very quickly, um, um, I certainly think it's much more substantive uh, than I think many people give it credit for. Uh, We are seeing moves and efforts uh, to try and give hard-edged accountability through incorporation into international law. I'm not particularly well up on that, but I know people who are, so I'll direct you to them uh, if we see you afterwards. Thanks. All right. And then finally, should private companies be able to go after countries? Well, I think, you know what, I think we are all pondering that one. And uh, thank you very much for leaving us with something to think about on the way home. Uh, But I'm going to close it off now. Um, Thank you very much. You've been a wonderful, very attentive audience. Thank you so much for our wonderful speakers. Uh, It's been a real pleasure. Uh, Not always... You know, the most uplifting uh, information we've heard tonight, but definitely insightful and definitely something uh, that we've all learned something from. And so thank you very much uh, for coming this evening. Thank you.